If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to the book of Titus. Book of Titus, New Testament, one of Paul's letters. And George Bailey is perhaps the most famous Christmas character other than the baby Jesus himself. You might need to be over the age of 40 to know this movie, uh, unless you've been blessed by mentors in your life who wanted to introduce you to the finer uh, elements of uh, culture. Uh, But uh, George Bailey finds himself bankrupt through no fault of his own, and uh, there he is standing on the bridge about to plunge to his death when, when the angel Clarence intervenes and takes George on a tour of his life to show him what the town and those in his life would be like if it weren't for him. And uh, through that, he's, he's given a glimpse into how the little things of an ordinary life can have a deep and meaningful impact. The little things of an ordinary life can have a deep and meaningful impact on people. In many ways, this is what the Apostle Paul is showing us in the book of Titus. He's showing us how our ordinary lives can have a deep and meaningful impact through the small things that we do. The book of Titus is a kind of X's and O's for the Christian life. It contains uh, God's game plan for the Christian life. So we're going to be doing a a series on this book, and we're going to begin today by looking at the first four verses. Titus 1, starting in verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. On the surface, in these opening verses, it looks like Paul is describing his unique ministry as an apostle. The term apostle was used a couple of different ways in the New Testament. The primary way was used to describe those who were firsthand witnesses to Jesus himself and then wrote the documents that became the foundation of the church in the New Testament. That's the primary way in which the word apostle is used in the New Testament. Um, However, one of the ways in which the Apostle Paul executed his ministry as an apostle is through the written word, through letters that he wrote to churches in the Mediterranean region. So if we are being faithful to reading, understanding, and living in line with uh, Paul's writings and also calling others to do the same, we have by extension a partnership with Paul in this apostolic ministry. We are apostles. The difference is in degree, not nature. And the reason it's important, I think, to state this because uh, in these verses, uh, Paul tells us about his own ministry practices and patterns. He's introducing us to his patterns, his practices in ministry that he adopted as part of his life as he executed God's game plan for the Christian life. We, by extension, are partners with him in that. 
The patterns and practices Paul adopted in his ministry are patterns and practices we need to adopt in our own lives because we are related to Paul in this apostolic ministry. So in this text, we're going to consider two patterns of Christian practice that Paul talks about and we need to adopt as well as followers of Christ. Here are the two. Bringing the lost to faith and training the saved for godliness. It's very simple and it's all in there. Bringing the lost to faith, training the saved for godliness. These are the first two plays in our playbook. These are the first sets of X's and O's in God's game plan for the Christian life. Let's look at the first, bringing the lost to faith. Verse one, Paul says he's a servant an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, I know this term elect is going to elicit some strong emotions in some of you based on past conversations you've had. If you have no clue what I'm, think, what I'm talking about, then ignorance is bliss on this one. This term elect has some stuff with it that if you have any past experience with, you know, can lead to some uh, heated conversation. Rest assured, I'm not going to resolve in less than 30 minutes a debate that's been around for centuries. Nonetheless, I don't want to be guilty of avoiding what's in the text. I don't want to avoid it. I don't want to play that game. Uh, we're going to dip our toe in the water. <laughs> we're going to save the deep end of the pool for another time. Okay, dipping our toe in the water on this one. Save the deep end for another time. Okay, here we go. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. It's a tension from Genesis to Revelation. It's not a contradiction. It's a logical tension that exists in the scriptures from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And that tension is present in this little phrase, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, on the one hand, Paul says there are a group of people out there called God's elect. But, at least from his perspective, they are not yet saved. He exists to bring about the faith of God's elect. He exists to help bring God's elect to saving faith in Jesus Christ. This is our responsibility as well. By extension, we are joined with Paul in this apostolic ministry to see God's elect come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this tension of divine sovereignty, human responsibility, uh, we need to spend a little bit of time with that. So let me take you to a passage in Acts 18 that I think gives some good clarity to particularly this part of it when divine sovereignty, human responsibility meet evangelism, bringing lost people to faith in Christ. So let me read from this passage, Acts 18. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. Okay. Now, context is king. Paul has been to the synagogue in Corinth. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews, as was his practice, to reason with the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Wasn't a good experience for him. Uh, text says that the people opposed him and reviled him. So Paul was a bit discouraged coming out of that interaction in the synagogue in Corinth. So God appears to Paul in a vision, telling him these things from Acts 18, 9 and 10. The meaning of these verses is illuminating. 
God is encouraging Paul to keep communicating the gospel and to go into the city. He's not been there yet. He went to the synagogue first, as was his practice. He's not been into the city. God says, Paul, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged, keep communicating the gospel because from my vantage point, outside of space and time, there are many in this city who belong to me, even though from your perspective, inside space and time, they have not yet come to the place of repentance and faith. This is significant. So from God's perspective, who sees the beginning from the end, who stands outside of of, of space and time, who is not caught up in sequence, He is able to say, there are people in this city who belong to me. So therefore, Paul, go preach the gospel to them. God's election of some people in Corinth has not mitigated Paul's responsibility to go into the city and communicate the gospel to them. Just because God is able to say, look, there are some in the city who belong to me, doesn't mean he tells Paul, don't bother, I got it. No, he says, I have many in the city who belong to me. Therefore, go into the city and communicate the gospel to them. Since studying this passage from Acts several years ago, I've often imagined, what if God would come to me? What if he would come to us? And he would say to us, listen, people of Alliance Bible Church, I have many in this community who belong to me. Many who belong to me. Even though, from your perspective, they have not yet repented and put their faith in my son Jesus. Therefore, I want you to go. Go. Go communicate the gospel to them. I've often wondered, if God came and said that, what effect would that have on me? You know what? I think I'd be encouraged by that. Good. There's some who belong to you. Fantastic. That means they're going to respond. Let me go. Let's go. Let's go do it. God's election of people does not discourage evangelism. In fact, the way God uses it in Acts 18, it's incentive to evangelize. It's incentive to communicate the gospel to lost people. I think I would be spurred on by that. Let me just offer four practical steps in cultivating a pattern of evangelism in your life. First, pray. (laughs) Pray for the lost in your life. Pray for the lost in your life. Simon Barrington Ward put it this way. He said, prayer is that apparently useless activity without which all activities are useless. Evangelism is useless without prayer. It's useless without prayer. Let me encourage you. Think about one face, one name. One face, one name. In your life, you know, doesn't know Jesus and pray for them. Commit to praying for them every day. Commit to praying for them every day. Pray that God would tear the scales from their eyes. They'd be able to see Jesus for who he really is. Pray that God would give you an opportunity to communicate the gospel in some way to them. Commit today, one person, one face, to pray for them every day that they would come to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, listen intently. Listen intently. Obviously, genuinely listening is an expression of genuine care. 
Sometimes I think we, we struggle to do the evangelism thing because in conversation with people, we just don't know exactly how to get this conversation to Jesus. How do we get it to the gospel? And one of the reasons we feel that it's difficult is we're actually not doing the first thing first, and that's listening. Get people talking. Jesus is right. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So listen for their dreams. Listen for their hopes. Listen for their fears. Listen for their anger. Listen for their anxiety. Oftentimes, that opens up channels to speak the gospel into their lives in a meaningful way that feels connected to the content of the conversation. So listen intently. Related to this, third, ask questions. Ask questions. I know Randy Newman came here a few years ago, talking about evangelism. Um, Randy Newman has written a great book called Questioning Evangelism. Uh, the, the premise of the book is not calling into question the merits of evangelism. The, the premise of the book is using questions in evangelism. Uh, he took a look at how Jesus used questions in his uh, evangelistic ministry. And he draws out some implications of that. It's an excellent book on using questions to do evangelism. Sometimes we think of evangelism as making statements to people. Uh, evangelism could be asking questions, too. And sometimes that's easier to do. It's, it's maybe a little bit uh, socially intelligent to do it that way, because oftentimes we can feel like we're jumping into our list of statements that we want to make with people, and we kind of force a square peg into a round hole in that conversation. I think an overlooked tactic in evangelism is simply asking questions. Ask questions. Get them talking and then listen to them as they speak. Last, share, invite, give. Okay, so you've prayed. Um, you're listening intently. You're asking questions and listening more as you ask questions as, and as they talk and as they respond. That conversation may, may generate a thought in your head Hey, based on what I've heard, based on what we're talking about, you know, I'd, I'd like to share just a thought with you as we finish the conversation. Or I'd love to invite you to church for this event or for this service. Or, you know, based on what we've been talking about, I know you're really struggling with this, so maybe, I, you know, I heard a sermon on this one day, I read this book or I read this brochure or whatever. Here's something to, to take home with you. Share, invite, Give. I want to encourage you with, uh, with this. Sometimes we feel a pressure to um, move the ball all the way down the field and score a touchdown in one conversation with someone who's lost. Uh, that's, <laughs> don't stop that. <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. It can take a process. Let me share a story with you. Rico Tice, uh, pastors, is a pastor at a church in London. And... Uh, Rico's a type A, off-the-chart kind of personality. Um, when he became a Christian, as you can probably imagine, that, that uh, fire caused him to be quite evangelistically active with his newfound faith. And, uh, and he was at, at school, university, something like that, and uh, he was evangelizing everybody in sight. And it's, interestingly enough, one of those that he had shared the gospel with was a guy named Robert. Robert writes in his own words, reflecting on the time Rico became a believer. This is what Robert said. He said, I knew Rico at school, though not well. We were in different classes, though we played in the same cricket team. 
And I distinctly remember Rico's conversion at school. I suspect if you asked most of our contemporaries, they too would remember it, even though it was over 30 years ago. Why was it so memorable? For two reasons. Firstly, the merciless reaction shown towards Rico. The constant public and private attempts to humiliate him and get him to relinquish his newfound faith, which went on for many, many months. Secondly, what really stuck out with me was how Rico carried himself during such a difficult time for him. The easy option would have been to turn back or keep quiet, but Rico stuck to his faith and he kept talking about his faith. Although I didn't realize this at the time, Rico's conversion and resolute faith sowed the first seed in my mind. Who was it that gave Rico the strength to continue down such a difficult path? That was the first stage in my own journey, which many years later led me to Jesus. And Robert concludes with this. He says, when I finally accepted Jesus into my life, one of the first things I felt I needed to do was write to Rico, despite not having been in contact for over 10 years, to let him know how his journey and struggle at school had helped me on my way. What's so interesting about this is that is that Rico's experience of Robert in the process of doing evangelism was all negative. (laughs) Rico would have walked away from those conversations with Robert thinking to himself, this is horrible. This is awful. This is painful. This is not good. That's Rico's takeaway from these interactions with Robert. And 10 years later, this is the letter he gets. 10 years later, this is the letter he gets. Charles Bridges, an old-time pastor, wrote this. He said, the seed may lie under clods till we lie there and then spring up. You might cast the seed of the gospel into someone's life and it's not going to spring up until you're in the ground. Think about that. Think about that. Now, if this morning you wouldn't consider yourself to be a Christian... Let me just throw a few things out there to to consider. Maybe maybe you've been a church attender growing up often or occasionally. Um, I want to say that that doesn't make you a Christian. If you've been told that, if you've been told that going to church makes you a Christian, you've you've been sold on something. You might look at your life, you think, I've been to church, I've been baptized, I've been confirmed, I've lived a moral life. That's what makes me a Christian. No, that's not what makes you a Christian. A Christian, simply put, is somebody who believes the gospel. Let me unpack that a little bit. Why is it that our moral and religious performance in life doesn't earn us a right standing with God, doesn't get us in? The reality is, the Bible tells us that even our best moral and religious efforts fall woefully short of God's perfect and righteous standard. That's what he requires. He requires perfection. And we all know in our heart of hearts that even our best attempts are going to fall short of that. So rather than leaving us to our own helplessness, God has had compassion on us and he sent Jesus into the world to live a perfect life for us. 
and then to die the death we should have died for failing to live the life we should have lived. God has done this out of his love and his compassion for humanity. Now, how do I become a Christian? I become a Christian by putting my faith and my trust, my allegiance alone in the life Jesus lived and the death he died for me. I say to God, God, I know my moral and religious performance are gonna come up woefully short of your perfect and righteous standard. I know that you have sent Jesus into this world to accomplish what I could never accomplish, to live the life I should have lived, to die the death I should have died. So I am placing my trust, my, my hope, my faith in that. See, the moment that penny drops, you become a Christian. This is why Christians make such a big deal about this idea of grace. We're not saved by our moral or spiritual religious performance. We are saved by what God has done in Christ for us. That's grace. If you haven't done that, why not today? If it's mind-boggling to you, talk to somebody about it. Talk to the person who invited you. Talk to the person you know goes here. Talk to me. It's too important to put off another day. So the first pattern of Christian practice we need to cultivate in our lives is bringing the lost to faith. Second, training the saved for godliness. Verse one also, Paul says that he's a servant and apostle for the sake of their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. For the sake of the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now, we might be tempted to see growth in godliness as completely separate from possessing saving faith. They are not separate. They're not separate. Let me show you. James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead faith. That faith is dead. Faith without works is dead faith. Dead faith doesn't save. Saving faith is alive. Only a living faith saves. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, you're not saved by fruit. That is, you're not saved by godliness. You're not saved by works. You're saved by faith, but you'll never be saved by fruitless faith. So godliness is the evidence the faith one possesses is saving faith. You could say uh, godliness, um, godliness is the outgrowth of saving faith. Godliness is the outgrowth of saving faith. Godliness and saving faith are different parts of the same plant. So our second pattern of Christian practice is growing in our knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now notice here Paul is not advocating for mere education in the Bible. It's not mere education in the Bible. It is education in the Bible that leads to godliness. The goal is growth and godliness, but he sees advancement in our knowledge of the truth as a means of growing in godliness. Growing in our knowledge of the truth is critical to um, growth and godliness. There are two extremes, though, here to avoid with this one. Um, studying the scriptures, advancing in our knowledge of the truth does not automatically lead to greater godliness. Okay. Studying the Bible, studying the, the truth, saturating yourself in Bible studies does not automatically lead to godliness. A professor of mine that told, told a story one time about um, 
C.H. Dodd was a, uh, one of the last polite theological liberals um, of his generation. And uh, C.H. Dodd was, he was being interviewed by the BBC and the BBC interviewer asked him an intriguing question. The question was, Professor Dodd, if, what if by some fluke every copy of the Greek New Testament were destroyed? How much of it could you reconstruct? And Professor Dodd said, all of it. All of it. Now, what I know of Professor Dodd, I believe him. He had a massive knowledge. Massive knowledge. But that knowledge is not the sanctifying work of the Word. That knowledge in and of itself is not the sanctifying work of the Word. Don Carson writing on this says this, it is possible to think somehow that because we're spending time studying biblical texts, we're becoming more holy but you don't have to spend too long at a seminary before you realize that sometimes studying all those texts may make you unholy. A certain kind of pride may set in. Mere education does not guarantee anything. Abstracted from the power and unction of the Spirit of God, a kind of idolatry of learning can appear, even in the scholarly work of believers. Such learning of the text does not guarantee the sanctifying work of the Word. Now, hearing this can cause us to swing the pendulum to the other side and say, well, you see what happens when you start studying the Bible? Look at what happens. There's the other extreme we have to avoid, sort of anti-intellectualism. Um, personally speaking, my heart over the years has not been prone to shrivel the more knowledge of God and his word I put into my head. Personally speaking, my heart has not been prone to shrivel the more I do that. In fact, some of the richest times of corporate and private worship for me were in seminary. When my days were occupied with studying the scriptures. Putting more knowledge of God and his word in my head was like putting wood on the fire of my worship. Brian Borgman tells um, a story of a group of women in his church who wanted to start a women's theology study group. They settled on reading and studying Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Okay, just in case you don't know, that's about a 1,300-page work. Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. We have that one in our library, by the way. Uh, if you don't, if you didn't know we have a library, we've got a great library here. Uh, it's second floor. You don't know how to get there. Stop by the Welcome Center. They'll take you up there and show you. But I encourage you to take a look at it. We've got a great library here. Uh, and this one's in there. And so these ladies decided to meet, and they wanted to read this book. It took them three years to pound through it. But they did. They pulled it off. One of the ladies in the group wrote her pastor a letter. This is what she said. Studying theology has brought me incredible joy. Stop there. Stick that in your theological pipe and smoke it. Studying theology has brought me incredible joy. Knowing God better and spending more time in his presence and beholding his beauty and glory make me happy and content in a way I have not known before. Studying systematic theology is gradually bringing together into one coherent whole all the strands of teaching and Bible reading of 30 plus years. 
Everything is making much more sense, both biblically and in life. Hearing the doctrine of God preached has made me mentally and emotionally healthier. I rarely suffer from depression now like I used to. A deep joy in the Lord is mine. It's an encouraging word to hear. And after you hear that, some of you may be prompted to want to do that. Great. But I'm not starting another program here. Here's what you do. You're in a group already, probably. Why don't you bring the idea to the group? Let's study some theology. You don't have to pound through Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. You can do something else if you'd like. But infuse it into the group you're already a part of. Maybe you have somebody who's mentoring you or discipling you. Maybe you don't. Find someone. Say, hey, I heard about this great story in church. Let's do that. Go find someone. Maybe, you're, maybe you want to get together an accountability group. I don't know. But do it. Don't wait for the church to put a program up for you to do this. Go find somebody and do it. God's game plan for the Christian life includes some patterns and practices. We've looked at two of them. Bringing the lost to faith, training the saved for godliness. Now, I want to conclude with this. Why do bringing the lost to faith and training the saved for godliness need to be patterns and practices in our lives? Why are they a part of God's game plan for the Christian life? Paul actually answers that in verse two. He says, in hope of eternal life, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. There it is. Bringing the lost to faith and training the saved for godliness are done in hopes of people one day inheriting eternal life. And eternal life is something God promised before the ages began. Wrap your head around that one. Eternal life is something God promised before the ages began. Before he spoke the universe into being, eternal life was already a part of the plan. Eternal life was not an afterthought in the mind of God. It's not as though when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, he scratched his head thinking, okay, I gotta come up with something here. Plan B. Otherwise, these folks are gonna hate this life or they're gonna hate where it's headed. So I better bail a few of them out. No, that's not the way it worked. From before the beginning of time, eternal life was always God's plan. Listen, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, it was always God's plan for you to spend eternity with him. It was not a happy accident you happened to fall into. There's no reluctance on God's part here. There is no plan B. It was always plan A. From before the ages began, God wanted you. Let me take you back to the spring of 2011. Spring of 2011. Even in the U.S., this was mind-boggling to me, even the U.S., media outlets were abuzz with an event not even happening here. In this country, not even happening here. The event, the wedding of one Prince William. You remember this? Every outlet talking about this, all of them. Prince William had found a bride. And we all needed to know about it. Where'd he find her? At the university he was attending. At the university he was attending. 
Okay, so let's imagine something different playing out here. Imagine William had gone about finding a bride differently. Imagine the day before his wedding, he had gone down to one of London's red light districts and plucked a prostitute from one of the brothels there. Imagine William taking her by the hand, getting down on one knee, and saying to her, I want to marry you. And I won't take no for an answer. Imagine he'd set the date, given her a choice of any dress she wanted, and then when the big day arrived, he'd taken her to Westminster Abbey and declares in front of everybody, she's my wife. She's part of the royal family now. She will inherit all that I inherit. Treat her as what she is, royalty. This would never happen. But it has happened. This has happened to every Christian. From before the beginning of time, God wanted you. So he's plucked us from our dirty, sleazy, desperate sinfulness. He's cleaned us up and he's married us and he's brought us into his divine royal family. Victor Hugo once wrote, life's greatest happiness is to be convinced you're loved. This is what happens when the lost are brought to faith and the, the, the saved are trained for godliness. They're convinced they're loved by a God who said before the ages began, I want you. I want you. Let's pray. Loving Father, we have received our marching orders today. We have studied the first two plays in your game plan for the Christian life, to be people who are active in sharing the gospel with those who are far from you, and to be diligent in training the saved for godliness. I pray we would be compelled to do so, but I pray we would be compelled not by guilt, not by fear, but we would be compelled by your love for us. Convince our hearts of your love for us. From before the ages began, you wanted us. So we bask in your love and we praise you for it now. In Christ's name, amen. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. God's people said, amen. amen.